Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for coming to the bookshelf tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, but before we do that, as usual, take some time to settle in. Begin by breathing deeply in through your nose and out through your mouth. Tonight, let's try a refocusing exercise. Bring your awareness to your right hand. Touch your thumb to your index finger, then your thumb to your middle finger, thumb to your fourth finger, thumb to your little finger, and now back again, thumb to your fourth finger, thumb to your middle finger, and thumb to your index finger. Relax your hand and relax your fingers. Now become aware of your left hand and again touch your thumb to your index finger, thumb to your middle finger, thumb to your fourth finger, thumb to your little finger and now back again, thumb to your fourth finger, thumb to your middle finger and thumb to your index finger. Now relax your hand and relax your fingers. The last time we found Jane with Mr. Mason tending to his wounds in the dark in one of the third story chambers while Mr. Rochester went to fetch the surgeon. Two hours passed before he came back. After the doctor had got to work, Mr. Rochester asked Jane to go downstairs to ensure the coast was clear them to get Mr. Mason into a carriage before anyone else was up. Seeing the man off, Jane was ready to go back into the house, but Mr. Rochester invited her to take a walk in the gardens where he talked about her helping him and if she'd be prepared to stay up with him again the night before his wedding to Miss Ingram. Jane explained to the reader that she had once heard Bessie say that dreams of children mean a danger is about to befall one of your family. The night after one such recurring dream, Jane was called to meet a visitor at Thornfield. It was Bessie's husband, John Levin. He had come on behalf of Mrs. Reed, who was dying and she was asking for Jane's presence. 
And so we pick back up tonight. Jane off to find Mr. Rochester to ask him to grant her leave to visit her dying god. So just try to relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 21 continued. He was not in any of the lower rooms. He was not in the yard, the stables, or the grounds. I asked Mrs. Fairfax if she had seen him. Yes, she believed he was playing billiards with Miss Ingram. To the billiard room I hastened, the click of the balls and the hum of the voices resounded thence. Mr. Rochester, Miss Ingram, and the two Mrs. Ashton and their admirers were all busied in the game. It required some courage to disturb so interesting a party. My errand, however, was one I could not defer. So, I approached the master, where he stood at Miss Ingram's side. She turned as I drew near and looked at me haughtily. Her eyes seemed to demand, what could this creeping creature want now? And when I said in a low voice, Mr. Rochester, she made a movement as if tempted to order me away. I remember her appearance at the moment. It was very graceful and very striking. She wore a morning robe of sky-blue crepe. A gauzy azure scarf was twisted in her hair. She had been all animation with the game, and irritated pride did not lower the expression of her haughty lineaments. Does that person want you? She inquired of Mr. Rochester, and Mr. Rochester turned to see who the person was. He made a curious grimace, one of his strange and equivocal demonstrations, threw down his cue and followed me from the room. Well, Jane, he said, as he rested his back against the schoolroom door, which he had shut. If you please, sir, I want a leave of absence for a week or two. What to do? Where to go? He asked. To see a sick lady who has sent for me, I replied. What sick lady? Where does she live? At Gateshead. A hundred miles off. Who may she be that she sends for people to see her that distance? Her name is Reed, sir. Mrs. Reed. Reed of Gateshead? There was a Reed of Gateshead, a magistrate. It is his widow, sir. And what have you to do with her? How do you know her? 
Mr. Reed was my uncle, my mother's brother. The deuce he was. You never told me that before. You always said you had no relations. None that would own me, sir. Mr. Reed is dead, and his wife cast me off. Why? Because I was poor and burdensome, and she disliked me. But Reed left children. You must have cousins. Sir George Lynn was talking of a Reed of Gateshead yesterday, who he said was one of the veriest rascals on town, and Ingram was mentioning a Georgiana Reed of the same place, who was much admired for her beauty a season or two ago in London. John Reed is dead too, sir. He ruined himself and half ruined his family and is supposed to have killed himself. The news so shocked his mother that it brought on an apoplectic attack. And what good can you do her? Nonsense, Jane. I would never think of running a hundred miles to see an old lady who will, perhaps, be dead before you reach her. Besides, you say she cast you off. Yes, sir, but that is long ago, and when her circumstances were very different, I could not be easy to neglect her wishes now. How long will you stay? As short a time as possible, sir. Promise me only to stay a week. I had better not pass my word. I might be obliged to break it. At all events, you will come back. You will not be induced under any pretext to take up a permanent residence with her. Oh, no. I shall certainly return if all be well. And who goes with you? You don't travel a hundred miles alone. No, sir. She has sent her coachman. A person to be trusted? Yes, sir. He has lived ten years in the family. Mr. Rochester meditated. When do you wish to go? Early tomorrow morning, sir. Well, you must have some money. You can't travel without money, and I dare say you have not much. I have given you no salary yet. How much have you in the world, Jane? He asked, smiling. I drew out my purse, a meagre thing it was. Five shillings, sir. He took the purse, poured the hoard into his palm, and chuckled over it as if its scantiness amused him. Soon he produced his pocketbook. Here, said he, offering me a note. It was fifty pounds, and he owed me but fifteen. I told him I had no change. I don't want change. You know that. Take your wages. I declined accepting more than was my due. He scowled at first. Then, as if recollecting something, he said, Right, right. Better not give you all now. You would, perhaps, stay away three months if you had fifty pounds. There are ten. 
it is not plenty. Yes, sir, but now you owe me five. Come back for it, then. I am your banker for forty pounds. Mr. Rochester, I may as well mention another matter of business to you while I have the opportunity. Matter of business? I'm curious to hear it. You have as good as informed me that you are going shortly to be married. Yes. What then? In that case, sir, Adele ought to go to school. I'm sure you will perceive the necessity of it. To get her out of my bride's way, who might otherwise walk over her rather too emphatically. There is sense in the suggestion, not a doubt of it. Adele, as you say, must go to school. And you, of course, must march straight to the devil. I hope not, sir. But I must seek another situation somewhere. In course, he said, with a twang of voice and a distortion of features equally fantastic and ludicrous. He looked at me some minutes. And old Madame Reed, or the Misses, her daughters, will be solicited by you to seek a place, I suppose. No, sir. I'm not on such terms with my relatives as would justify me in asking favors of them. But I shall advertise. You shall walk up the pyramids of Egypt, he growled. At your peril, you advertise. I wish I had only offered you a sovereign instead of ten pounds. Give me back nine pounds, Jane. I have need for it. So have I, sir, I returned, putting my hands and my purse behind me. I could not spare the money on any account. Refusing me a personary request, he said. Give me five pounds, Jane. Not five shillings, sir. Not five pence. Just let me look at the cash. No, sir. You are not to be trusted. Jane. Sir. Promise me one thing. I'll promise you anything, sir, but I think I am likely to perform. Not to advertise, he said, and trust this quest of a situation to me. I'll find you one in time. I shall be glad to do so, sir, if you, in your turn, will promise that I and Adele shall both be safe out of the house before your bride enters it. Very well, very well. I'll pledge my word on it. You go tomorrow, then? Yes, sir. Early. Shall you come down to the drawing room after dinner? No, sir. I must prepare for the journey. Then you and I must bid goodbye for a little while. I suppose so, sir. And how do people perform that ceremony of parting, Jane? Teach me. I'm not quite up to it. They say farewell, or any other form they prefer. Then say it. <laughs>
Farewell, Mr. Rochester, for the present. What must I say? The same, if you like, sir. Farewell, Miss Anne, for the present. Is that all? Yes. Seems stingy to my notions, and dry and unfriendly. I should like something else, a little addition to the right. If one shook hands, for instance. But no, that would not content me either. So you'll do no more than say farewell, Jane? It is enough, sir. As much good will may be conveyed in one hearty word as in many. Very likely. But it is blank and cool. Farewell. How long is he going to stand with his back against that door? I asked myself. I want to commence my packing. The dinner bell rang, and suddenly away he bolted without another syllable. I saw him no more during the day, and was off before he had risen in the morning. I reached the lodge at Gateshead about five o'clock in the afternoon of the 1st of May. I stepped in there before going up to the hall. It was very clean and neat. The ornamental windows were hung with little white curtains. The floor was spotless. The grate and fire irons were burnished bright and the fire burnt clear. Bessie sat on the hearth, nursing her last-born, and Robert and his sister played quietly in a corner. Bless you, I knew you would come, said Mrs. Levin as I entered. Yes, Bessie, said I, after I had kissed her. But I trust I am not too late. How is Mrs. Reed? Alive still, I hope. Yes, she is alive. More sensible and collected than she was. The doctor says she might linger a week or two yet, but he hardly thinks she will finally recover. Has she mentioned me lately? I asked. She was talking of you only this morning, wishing you would come. But she's sleeping now, or was ten minutes ago, when I was up at the house. She generally lies in a kind of lethargy all afternoon, wakes up about six or seven. Will you rest yourself here an hour, miss, then I'll go up with you. Robert here entered, and Bessie laid her sleeping child in the cradle and went to welcome him. Afterwards, she insisted on my taking off my bonnet and having some tea, for she said I looked pale and tired. I was glad to accept her hospitality, and I submitted to be relieved of my travelling garb, just as passively as I used to let her undress me when a child. Old times crowded fast back on me as I watched her bustling about, 
setting out the tea tray with her best china, cutting bread and butter, toasting a tea cake, and between whiles, giving little Robert or Jane an occasional tap or push, just as she used to give me in former days. Bessie had retained her quick temper as well as her light foot and good looks. Tea ready, I was going to approach the table, but she desired me to sit still, quite in her old preemptory tones. I must be served at the fireside, she said, and she placed before me a little round stand with my cup and a plate of toast, absolutely as she used to accommodate me, with some privately purloined dainty on a nursery chair, and I smiled and obeyed her as in bygone days. She wanted to know if I was happy at Thornfield Hall, and what sort of a person the mistress was when I told her there was only a master, whether he was a nice gentleman and if I liked him. I told her he was rather an ugly man, but quite a gentleman, and that he treated me kindly, and I was content. Then I went on to describe to her the company that had lately been staying at the house, and to these details... Bessie listened with interest. They were precisely of the kind she relished. In such conversation, an hour was soon gone. Bessie restored to me my bonnet, etc. And, accompanied by her, I quitted the lodge for the hall. It was also accompanied by her that I had nearly nine years ago walked down the path I was now ascending. On a dark, misty, raw morning in January, I had left a hostile roof with a desperate and embittered heart. A sense of outlawry and almost of reprobation to seek the chilly harborage of Lowood that born so far away and unexplored. The same hostile roof now again rose before me. My prospects were doubtful yet, and I had yet an aching heart. I still felt as a wanderer on the face of the earth, but I experienced firmer trust in myself and my own powers, and less withering dread of oppression. The gaping wound of my wrongs, too, was now quite healed, and the flame of resentment extinguished. You shall go into the breakfast room first, said Bessie, as she preceded me through the hall. The young ladies will be there. In another moment, I was within that apartment. There was every article of furniture 
looking just as it did on the morning I was first introduced to Mr. Brocklehurst. The very rug he had stood upon still covered the hearth. Glancing at the bookcases, I thought I could distinguish the two volumes of Berwick's British Birds occupying their old place on the third shelf. And Gulliver's Travels and the Arabian Nights ranged just above. The inanimate objects were not changed, but the living things had altered past recognition. Two young ladies appeared before me, one very tall, almost as tall as Miss Ingram, very thin too, with a sallow face and severe mien. There was something ascetic in her look, which was augmented by the extreme plainness of a straight-skirted, black, stuffed dress, a starched linen collar, hair combed away from the temples, and the nun-like ornament of a string of ebony beads and a crucifix. This I felt sure was Eliza, though I could trace little resemblance to her former self in that elongated and colourless visage. The other was as certainly Georgiana, but not the Georgiana I remembered, the slim and fairy-like girl of eleven. This was a full-blown, very plump damsel, fair as waxwork, with handsome and regular features languishing blue eyes and ringleted yellow hair. The hue of her dress was black too, but its fashion was so different from her sister's, so much more flowing and becoming. It looked as stylish as the others looked puritanical. In each of the sisters, there was one trait of the mother, and only one. The thin and pallid elder daughter had her parents' cairngorm eye. The blooming and luxuriant younger girl had her contour of jaw and chin, perhaps a little softened, but still imparting an indescribable hardness to the countenance otherwise so voluptuous and buxom. Both ladies, as I advanced, rose to welcome me, and both addressed me by the name of Miss Eyre. Eliza's greeting was delivered in a short, abrupt voice, without a smile, and then she sat down again, fixed her eyes on the fire and seemed to forget me. Georgiana added to her, how do you do, several commonplaces about my journey, the weather and so on, 
uttered in a rather drawling tone and accompanied by sundry side glances that measured me from head to foot, now traversing the folds of my drab merino pelisse, and now lingering on the plain trimming of my cottage bonnet. Young ladies have a remarkable way of letting you know that they think you are quiz without actually saying the words. A certain superciliousness of look, coolness of manner, nonchalance of tone express fully their sentiments on the point without committing them by any positive rudeness in word or deed. A sneer, however, whether covert or open, had now no longer that power over me it once possessed. As I sat between my cousins, I was surprised to find how easy I felt under the total neglect of the one, and the semi-sarcastic attentions of the other. Eliza did not mortify, nor Georgiana ruffle me. The fact was, I had other things to think about. Within the last few months, feelings had been stirred in me so much more potent than any they could raise, pains and pleasures so much more acute and exquisite had been excited than any it was in their power to inflict or bestow, that their airs gave me no concern either for good or bad. How is Mrs. Reed? I asked soon, looking calmly at Georgiana, who thought fit to bridle at the direct address as if it were an unexpected liberty. Mrs. Reed? Ah, Mama, you mean? She is extremely poorly. I doubt if you can see her tonight. If, said I, you would just step upstairs and tell her I am come, I should be much obliged to you. Georgiana almost started, and she opened her blue eyes, wild and wide. I know she had a particular wish to see me, I added, and I would not defer attending to her desire longer than is absolutely necessary. Mama dislikes being disturbed in an evening, remarked Eliza. I soon rose, quietly took off my bonnet and gloves, uninvited, and said I would just step out to Bessie, who was, I dared say, in the kitchen, and ask her to ascertain whether Mrs. Reed was disposed to receive me or not tonight. I went, and having found Bessie and dispatched her on my errand, I proceeded to take further measures. It had heretofore been my habit 
always to shrink from arrogance. Received as I had been today, I should, a year ago, have resolved to quit Gateshead the very next morning. Now, it was disclosed to me all at once that that would be a foolish plan. I had taken a journey of a hundred miles to see my aunt, and I must stay with her till she was better or dead. As to her daughter's pride or folly, I must put it on one side, make myself independent of it. So I addressed the housekeeper, asked her to show me a room, told her I should probably be a visitor here for a week or two, had my trunk conveyed to my chamber and followed it thither myself. I met Bessie on the landing. Mrs. Wake, said she, I have told her you are here. Come and let us see if she will know you. I did not need to be guided to the well-known room to which I had so often been summoned for chastisement or reprimand in former days. I hastened before Bessie. I softly opened the door. A shaded light stood on the table, for it was now getting dark. There was the great four-post bed with amber hangings as of old. There the toilet table, the armchair and the footstool at which I had a hundred times been sentenced to kneel to ask pardon for offences by me uncommitted. I looked into a certain corner near, half expecting to see the slim outline of a once dreaded switch which used to lurk there, waiting to leap out, imp-like, and lace my quivering palm or shrinking neck. I approached the bed. I opened the curtains and leant over the high-piled pillows. Well did I remember Mrs. Reed's face, and I eagerly sought the familiar image. Tis a happy thing that time quells the longings of vengeance and hushes the promptings of rage and aversion. I had left this woman in bitterness and hate, and I came back to her now with no other emotion than a sort of ruth for her great sufferings and a strong yearning to forget and to forgive all injuries, to be reconciled and clasp hands in amity. The well-known face was there, stern, relentless as ever. There was that peculiar eye which nothing could melt, and the somewhat raised, imperious, despotic eyebrow. How often had it lowered on me menace and hate, 
and how the recollection of childhood's terrors and sorrows revived as I traced its harsh line now. And yet I stooped down and kissed her. She looked at me. Is this Jane Eyre? She said. Yes, Aunt Reed. How are you, dear aunt? I had once vowed that I would never call her aunt again. I thought it no sin to forget and break that vow now. My fingers had fastened on her hand, which lay outside the sheet. Had she pressed mine kindly, I should at that moment have experienced true pleasure. But unimpressionable natures are not so soon softened, nor are natural antipathies so readily eradicated. Mrs. Reed took her hand away and, turning her face rather from me, she remarked that the night was warm. Again, she regarded me so icily, I felt at once that her opinion of me, her feeling towards me, was unchanged and unchangeable. I knew by her stony eye, opaque to tenderness, indissoluble to tears, she was resolved to consider me bad to the last, because to believe me good would give her no generous pleasure, only a sense of mortification. I felt pain, and then I felt ire, and then I felt a determination to subdue her, to be her mistress, in spite both of her nature and her will. My tears had risen, just as in childhood. I ordered them back to their source. I brought a chair to the bedhead. I sat down and leaned over the pillow. You sent for me, I said, and I am here, and it is my intention to stay till I see how you get on. Oh, of course, said she. You have seen my daughters? Yes, I replied. Well, you may tell them I wish you to stay till I can talk some things over with you I have on my mind. Tonight it is too late, and I have a difficulty in recalling them. But there was something I wished to say. The wandering look and changed utterance told what wreck had taken place in her once vigorous frame. Turning restlessly, she drew the bedclothes round her. My elbow, resting on a corner of the quilt, fixed it down. She was at once irritated. Oh, sit up, said she. 
don't annoy me with holding the bedclothes fast. Are you Jane Eyre? I am Jane Eyre. I've had more trouble with that child than anyone would believe. Such a burden to be left on my hands. So much annoyance she caused me, daily and hourly. With her incomprehensible disposition, her sudden starts of temper, and her continual, unnatural watchings of one's movements, I declare she talked to me once like something mad, or like a fiend. No child ever spoke or looked as she did. I was glad to get her away from the house. What did they do with her at Lowood? The fever broke out there and many of the pupils died. She, however, did not die. But I said she did. I wish she had died. A strange wish, Mrs. Reed, I replied. Why do you hate her so? I disliked her mother, always. She was my husband's only sister and a great favorite with him. He opposed the families, disowning her when she made her low marriage. And when the news came of her death, he wept like a child. He would send for the baby though I entreated him rather to put it out to nurse and pay for its maintenance. I hated it the first time I set my eye on it. Sickly, whining, pining thing. It would wail in its cradle all night long, not screaming heartily like any other child, but whimpering, and moaning. Reed pitied it, and he used to nurse it and notice it as if it had been his own, more, indeed, than he ever noticed his own at that age. He would try to make my children friendly to the little beggar. The darlings could not bear it, but he was angry with them when they showed their dislike. In his last illness, he had brought it continually to his bedside. But an hour before he died, he bound me vow to keep the creature. I would as soon have been charged with a pauper brat out of a workhouse. But he was weak, naturally weak. John does not at all resemble his father, and I'm glad of it. John is like me, and like my brothers. He's quite a Gibson. Oh, I wish he would cease tormenting me with letters for money. I have no more money to give him. We are getting poor. I must send away half the servants and shut up part of the house or let it off. Can never submit to that. Yet how are we to get on?
Two-thirds of my income goes in paying the interest of mortgages. John gambles dreadfully and always loses. Poor boy. He's beset by sharpers. John is sunk and degraded. His look is frightful. I feel ashamed for him when I see him. She was getting much excited. I think I better leave her now, I said to Bessie, who stood on the other side of the bed. Perhaps you had, miss. She often talks this way toward night. In the morning, she is calmer. I rose. Stop, ordered Mrs. Reed. There is another thing I wish to say. He threatens me. He continually threatens me with his own death or mine. And I dream sometimes that I see him laid out with a great wound in his throat or with a swollen and blackened face. I am come to a strange pass. I have heavy troubles. What is to be done? How is the money to be had? Bessie now endeavoured to persuade her to take a sedative draught. She succeeded with difficulty. Soon after, Mrs. Reed grew more composed and sank into a dozing state. I then left her. More than ten days elapsed before I had again any conversation with her. She continued either delirious or lethargic, and the doctor forbade everything which could painfully excite her. Meantime, I got on as well as I could with Georgiana and Eliza. They were very cold indeed at first. Eliza would sit half the day sewing, reading, or writing, and scarcely utter a word either to me or her sister. Georgiana would chatter nonsense to her canary bird by the hour and take no notice of me, but I was determined not to seem at a loss for occupation or amusement. I had brought my drawing materials with me, and they served me for both. Provided with a case of pencils and some sheets of paper, I used to take a seat apart from them near the window and busy myself in sketching fancy vignettes representing any scene that happened momentarily to shape itself in the ever-shifting kaleidoscope of imagination. A glimpse of scene between two rocks, the rising moon, and a ship crossing its disk. A group of reeds and water flags, and a naiad's head crowned with lotus flowers, rising out of them, an elf sitting in a hedge sparrow's nest under a wreath of hawthorn bloom. One morning, I felt a sketching a face. 
what sort of a face it was to be, I did not care or know. I took a soft black pencil, gave it a broad point, and worked away. Soon I had traced on the paper a broad and prominent forehead and a square lower outline of visage. That contour gave me pleasure. My fingers proceeded actively to fill it with features. Strongly marked horizontal eyebrows must be traced under that brow. Then followed naturally a well-defined nose with a straight ridge and full nostrils. Then a flexible-looking mouth, by no means narrow. Then a firm chin with a decided cleft down the middle of it. Of course, some black whiskers were wanted and some jetty hair tufted on the temples and waved above their forehead. Now for the eyes. I had left them to the last because they required the most careful working. I drew them large. I shaped them well. The eyelashes I traced, long and somber. The irises, lustrous and large. Good, but not quite the thing, I thought as I surveyed the effect. They want more force and spirit. And I wrought the shades blacker that the lights might flash more brilliantly. A happy touch on two secured successes. There, I had a friend's face under my gaze. And what did it signify that those young ladies turned their backs on me? I looked at it. I smiled at the speaking likeness. I was absorbed and content. Is that a portrait of someone you know? Asked Eliza, who had approached me unnoticed. I responded that it was merely a fancy head and hurried it beneath other sheets. Of course, I lied. It was, in fact, a very faithful representation of Mr. Rochester, what was that to her or to anyone but myself? Georgiana also advanced to look. The other drawings pleased her much, but she called that an ugly man. They both seemed surprised at my skill. I offered to sketch their portraits, and each in turn sat for a pencil outline. Then, Georgiana produced her album. I promised to contribute a watercolor drawing. This put her at once into good humor. She proposed a walk in the grounds. Before we had been out two hours, we were deep in a confidential conversation. 
She had favoured me with a description of the brilliant winter she had spent in London two seasons ago, of the admiration she had there excited, the attention she had received, and I even got hints of the titled conquest she had made. In the course of the afternoon and evening, these hints were enlarged on. Various soft conversations were reported, and sentimental scenes represented, and in short, a volume of a novel of fashionable life was that day improvised by her for my benefit. The communications were renewed from day to day. They always ran on the same theme, herself, her loves and woes. It was strange she never once adverted either to her mother's illness or her brother's death or the present gloomy state of the family prospects. Her mind seemed wholly taken up with reminiscences of past gaiety and aspirations after dissipations to come. She passed about five minutes each day in her mother's sick room and no more. Eliza still spoke little. She had evidently no time to talk. I never saw a busier person than she seemed to be that it was difficult to say what she did, or rather, to discover any result of her diligence. She had an alarm to call her up early. I know not how she occupied herself before breakfast, but after that meal, she divided her time into regular portions, and each hour, had its allotted task. Three times a day, she studied a little book, which I found, on inspection, was a common prayer book. I asked her once what was the great attraction of that volume, and she said, The Rubric. Three hours she gave to stitching with gold thread, the border of a square crimson cloth, almost large enough for a carpet. In answer to my inquiries after the use of this article, she informed me it was a covering for the altar of a new church lately erected near Gateshead. Two hours she devoted to her diary, two to working by herself in the kitchen garden, and one to the regulation of her accounts. She seemed to want no company, no conversation. I believe she was happy in her way. This routine sufficed for her, and nothing annoyed her so much as the occurrence of any incidents which forced her to vary its clockwork regularity. She told me one evening 
when more disposed to be communicative than usual, that John's conduct and the threatened ruin of the family had been a source of profound affliction to her, that she had now, she said, settled her mind and formed her resolution, her own fortune she had taken care to secure. And when her mother died, and it was wholly improbable, she tranquilly remarked that she should either recover or linger long. She would execute a long, cherished project, seek a retirement where punctual habits would be permanently secured from disturbance, and place safe barriers between herself and a frivolous world. I asked if Georgiana would accompany her. Of course not, she said. Georgiana and she had nothing in common. They never had had. She would not be burdened with her society for any consideration. Georgiana should take her own course, and she Eliza would take hers.